I would ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9 is where we're going to be spending our time this morning looking at this great and weighty chapter. And once you have that, if you're able to stand, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word while I read this to us. Revelation chapter 9. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft to the abyss, and smoke came up out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace, so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Then locusts came out of the smoke onto the earth, and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. They were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. Their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like human faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And they had tails with stingers like scorpions so that, their tails, so that with their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. They had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. There are still two more woes to come after this. And the sixth angel blew his trumpet. From the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. It's a weighty passage, isn't it? There's an awful lot there. It covers some very serious themes. And we, this morning, as we go through this passage together, we're going to cover some weighty themes as well. To begin with, have you heard of the new show, Little Demon? Little Demon is a program that's being produced by FX, which is a subsidiary company of the Walt Disney Company. Walt Disney will be directly promoting this new show, Little Demon, in Australia and New Zealand. And Hulu is currently carrying this program in the United States. The main character's name is Chrissy. And I assume that the name is not chosen uh, as an accident because she is a 13-year-old anti-Christ figure. So Chrissy Christ, 
the product of a one-night stand between Satan and her Satanist mother, Laura. According to reports, the show is filled with satanic imagery. It's filled with violence. It's filled with nudity. And while the, cl- the show claims to be aimed at adults, it's very, very likely that many, many children will be harmed by this cartoon. Now, one wonders why Disney, which is supposed to be family-friendly, has a commercial interest in promoting Satanism in our day. But of course, that's just one instance of what's happening in our culture. And what's happening in our culture is that there is an increasing overt Satanism and embrace of Satanism in our culture, particularly in pop culture and even in the government. So recently, Megan Fox went on record as drinking the blood of her boyfriend during, quote-unquote, rituals. One wonders what kind of rituals those are. Music performer Lady Gaga is a huge fan and a disciple of Marita Abramovich, whose art is art, is overtly pornographic and occult, satanic. Abramovich is also associated with others in Hollywood, including Jay-Z and Beyonce. And she's apparently a darling of the U.S. State Department, which promotes her and her work on its art.state.gov website. And anecdotally, I took my children to the movies trying to find something that we could watch as a family, only to be subjected to horror film preview after horror film preview that were overtly occult and satanic in their themes And friends, these are not wild conjectures on my part. I'm not guessing here. I have citations for all of this. These are documented instances of a rise of an overt occult Satanism in our nation. We need to have our eyes open to it. You see, having turned our back on the true God, many in our culture are finding it very easy to open themselves up to the God of this world, Satan, You see, we have banished the true God from our culture, and so there is a religious and spiritual vacuum that has formed, and an occult paganism is rushing into that vacuum. And so, as a culture, we are beginning to embrace forces that are unspeakably evil. That's simply true. That's simply what's occurring in our day. Now, these forces have been around from the very beginning, from the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, And they're going to be around. They're going to continue to be around. The Bible teaches that these spiritual forces will one day ravage the world in ways that are inconceivable. Actually, ironically, at the end of time, the Bible says that these spiritual forces, these demons, if you will, will be unleashed on the world in such a way as to completely ruin and wreck those who reject the true God in order to worship demons. Did you notice how much demons and sorcery was in the passage that we just read this morning? Well, this is what we're going to see this morning as we're studying God's Word together. So we're studying the book of Revelation. Last week, we looked at chapter 8. We saw the first four uh, trumpets were blown, and as they were blown, plagues fell. Uh, These plagues are the beginning of final judgment. This is what we're seeing. God is telling us in advance what will happen. This is the beginning of final judgment where these four plagues fell upon the natural order. So upon the sea and upon the land and upon the fresh waters and the heavenly bodies. We noted that these plagues were judgments. They're real judgments. They'll do real damage. But you, they, you notice, and we also said that they're also evidences of God's mercy because God could come in an instant and just wipe out all of his enemies. But instead, he's going to warn. He's going to use judgments to warn so that those who have rejected him would have an opportunity to 
repent before it's too late. Well, we're continuing these trumpet judgments this morning, looking at chapter 9 now. Here we see the fifth and the sixth trumpets, which you remember are going to be called woes. Now, it's interesting in terms of relative length. uh, John only took six verses to talk about the first four plagues. But this week, for these two plagues, these trumpet judgments, he takes all 21 verses, which means that there's an awful lot of vivid imagery in these chapters. But it probably also indicates an increased intensity of judgment. In other words, the judgment is going to ratchet up. So these trumpets are described as woes, and they're going to fall upon the earth. They're going to fall directly, as we said, on humanity. But notice that it's not all humanity. It's going to fall upon those that have rejected God in order to worship Satan and his Antichrist. Those who have rebelled against the true God. So God, when he was pouring out judgment on the people of Egypt, he made a distinction between his people, those who belonged to him and those who did not. And again, the Bible is showing that in the last times he will do the same. He will make a distinction between those who belong to him, those who are sealed, those who are under his protection, and those who are not. Now, there's a lot more in this chapter than we're going to be able to cover this morning. But in our time together, we're going to briefly do an exposition of the chapter, and then we're going to discuss three truths that flow out of this passage. If you're taking notes, uh, the three truths from Revelation chapter 9, verse 1 to 21 that we'll be covering this morning are first, Satan and demons are real. Satan and demons are real. Second, God is sovereign. Such good news there. And third, sin is deeply rooted in the human heart. Sin is deeply rooted in the human heart. Now, before we dive into this passage, let me make kind of three comments that will help uh, orient us and help you understand my position, my understanding of this passage before we dive in. First, I want us to see that these visions were clearly overwhelming for John. He uses the word like some 12 times as you work your way through this chapter, like this or like that. Why does he use like over and over? Because he's grasping for words to describe the spiritual realities that he is seeing in these visions. So we shouldn't be wooden and literal in our interpretation, and we shouldn't be looking for, you know, kind of a significance for every single detail as if this is an allegory. Instead, I think what we're intended to do is we're intended to let kind of the weight of these descriptions fall upon us, and we get some sense of the unimaginable horror and destruction that John is witnessing in these two visions. Second, I believe that these are visions of the future, That is how this passage presents itself. He describes these locust-like demons. That's what I believe they are that are going to come out of the abyss during the tribulation. And then in verse 6, he makes this interesting comment. He says, in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Now, given the fact that the book of Revelation is most fundamentally a book of prophecy... It makes sense that in those, day, in those days there, it refers to actual days, to real days. And those would be days in the future, I believe days near the end of time. And then if you look at verse 15, which we'll study later, John writes, So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released. Again, John seems to be taking pains to refer to a specific hour, a specific time in the future when these evil forces are going to be released upon the earth. I understand these to be visions of the future. 
Third, just as I believe we should take the first four trumpets as basically literal, so I believe that we should take the fifth and the sixth trumpets as basically literal. In other words, John is grasping at words to try to describe the realities that he's seeing. These realities were overwhelming for him. That's clear as you read through his description. And yet, we should take his description at face value because he is communicating something to us. He's communicating something to us that we should be able to grasp some of that. And a plain reading of the text indicates that John is describing demonic activity that will be unleashed on the world at the end of time. Now, that's certainly weird from our perspective today, isn't it? We don't interact with demons very much. It seems strange, but the fact that it's strange to our experience doesn't mean that it's not true. And think about it this way. When the Lord Jesus was on the earth, as you read through the Gospels, it's very clear that there was a heightened uh, activity among demonic forces as Christ is going around doing his ministry. I think in the same way, towards the end, just before Christ returns again, there will be a, a heightening to, a, to the highest pitch ever heightening of demonic activity on the earth. I believe that is what this chapter is showing us. So look at verse 1, if you will. You see what happens when the fifth angel blew his trumpet. John saw a star there. That word star refers to an angel that had fallen from heaven to earth. Now, some commentators view this star, this angel that had fallen from heaven to earth as Satan, and that is certainly possible. But because the angel isn't specifically named, I think it's probably better just to simply view this as another angel that has been sent to carry out God's will. And notice what the angel has. He has a key. Is a key to the shaft, to the abyss. That word abyss, it's translated bottomless pit. If you have the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Bible, that word is translated as bottomless pit. The idea is this vast space, this expanse, this abyss under the ground is the idea. Well, it's used seven times in Revelation, and it refers to an abode or even a prison for fallen angels. Now, in Luke chapter 8 and verse 31, we learn that this abyss is a real place. And we learn that it's a place of punishment. How do we know that? Because the demons that Christ is going to cast out there beg him not to send him there. Friends, the abyss is a real place. Now, verse 2 to 5, we see that the angel with the key, he opens the shaft of the abyss and dense smoke pours out. But it's not just dense smoke. I mean, the, the wording is very vivid as you look at it. You can almost just see kind of swarming out, crawling out. These locust-like beings are swarming out of this abyss. And just as the locust in the eighth plague on Egypt were bent on destruction, and the locust in Joel 1 that we read earlier in the service were bent on destruction, so this, this swarm of locusts, they're on a mission of destruction. But they won't be like ordinary locusts. I think we should see that. You look at verse 3, it's very clear they're commanded not to touch the grass or green plants or trees. They have a mission, and the mission is to harm those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. We've talked about the seal of God before. It's the sign that these people belong to God. It's a spiritual reality that sets apart God's people from those who do not belong to God. Those are the objectives that these beings are after so these are odd locusts who don't destroy plants, but they do harm people. And then verse 5 tells us that they are not permitted to kill, but they are permitted to torment. In other words, they'll be permitted to torment unbelievers, those who have sided with Satan, those who have sided with his Antichrist against God. And the torment that they inflict is going to be serious torment. 
John says it's like the sting of a scorpion, which can be incredibly, incredibly painful. Now, verse 6 is, for me anyway, it's the most interesting verse in this passage. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Apparently, the torment caused by these locusts will be so intense that people will want to end it all, but somehow, in some supernatural way, they will not be able to. As we were discussing this earlier, Bryce mentioned that this is something like a foreshadowing of hell, where people in hell are in torment, and they want it to end, and they want to get away from it, and yet they can't. These five months, this brief period of time, will be in some ways a a picture of that. Now, looking at this, I find it hard to read these words as anything other than literal. After all, if the inability to kill oneself isn't literal, what other symbol or reality is it pointing to? What else could it be referring to? Well, you look at verse 7 to 10, John gives a description of the locust. Again, we need to keep in mind as we read this that John is grasping at words that people would be able to understand as he views these beings. Look at verse 7 to 10, and look how many times he uses the word like. The appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like human faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And they had tails with stingers like scorpions, so that with their tails they had power to harm people for five months. Now, commentators give different explanations of these various descriptions, how we should understand them. But if you just take the overall picture in, the overall picture is terrifying, isn't it? Here you have this massive swarm, this horde of grotesque otherworldly beings that are anxious for one thing, like horses prepared for battle. They are anxious for battle. They're anxious to harm. They have human faces, which probably refers to intelligence. They have hair like, uh, like a woman or like women's hair, which I think perhaps you know, refers to the way the intent of locusts look. They had iron breastplates, which show that they are impervious to uh, being defeated or being attacked. They had stingers like scorpions, showing that they were equipped to inflict powerful pain and suffering on their victims. And when you look at verse 11, you notice that they also have a leader. Now, locusts don't have leaders, but this swarm does. And it's an angel. It's the angel of the abyss. His name is Abaddon in Hebrew. It's Apollyon in Greek. Both of those names mean destruction or destroyer. This is a fallen angel. Now, friends, a swarm of locusts is a powerful thing. Uh, Some swarms have been something like 100 foot deep and something like four miles long. And when they come into a region, they devour everything. All plant life is completely stripped away. They leave nothing behind. It's very, very destructive. And this swarm of locusts or locust-like beings that John sees here, they likewise will be vastly destructive. Led by a fallen angel, they'll be able to torment all those who have turned away from God for five months. So what should we make of this swarm? Well, given that the abyss, where they come from, is an actual place, according to the Bible, it's a place where fallen angels have been imprisoned. And given that the locusts have a leader who is a high-ranking fallen angel named Apollyon, I believe we should understand John's vision to be not real locusts, but demonic beings, fallen angels, demonic creatures that will come into this world in the last days. 
I don't believe, again, that John is referring to literal locusts, but to these demonic creatures with features that are so disturbing that John can only just kind of grasp at words to help us understand what it was that he was seeing. And these demonic locusts will be permitted by God to leave the spiritual prison and really to run amok on the earth for some five months, brief period of time, in order to inflict harm. Again, this is judgment. This is judgment. They will be permitted to harm, but they won't be permitted to kill. But they will torment so badly that people will want to die and yet somehow will be restrained from doing so. Can you imagine a plague worse than this? What could be worse than that? Well, actually, we can. Look at verse 13. Uh, you get now to the sixth trumpet, right? In, in verse 13, John says, two more. A voice says, two more woes are to come after this. Here, we see the second woe coming, verses thick, six, excuse me, verse 13 to 21. The sixth angel blows his trumpet. And in verse 14, John heard a voice from the middle of the altar who says, release the four angels who are bound at the great rivers Euphrates. Now, the Euphrates is one of the most famous rivers in the world. It's some 1,700 miles long. It has a rich history in the Bible. Uh, actually, it's one of the, the rivers that flowed out of Eden. The river that flowed out of Eden went into four different rivers, and the Euphrates was one of those rivers. Uh, it was near the Euphrates that sin began, therefore, where the first lie was told, where the first murder was committed, and where the Tower of Babel was built. And you see it all throughout the history of the people of Israel in the Old Testament as well. Now, the Greek in verse 13 indicates that these fallen angels had been bound at the river for a long time, probably for a long time. So perhaps they were like the angels who were disobedient in the days of Noah, who had then been imprisoned unto final judgment to await the time of final judgment. Only these four angels have been bound or imprisoned for a particular time, a specific time. The, you notice the word the, specific. The hour, day, month, and year that God has appointed. And when the sixth trumpet blows, that's when this will occur. And then what follows their release? Nothing less than hell on earth. That's what happens. Verses 16 to 19, it becomes evident that these four angels will be led or will be leading a mass of demonic riders. Again, I believe John is grasping at language to try to help us understand the spiritual realities that he is seeing. They, there'll be something like troops who are let loose on the earth to kill a third of humanity. Verse 16 tells us these troops will be an astonishing 200 million in number. That's a vast number. They'll ride on horses wearing red and blue and yellow breastplates, again, indicating that they're impervious to attack. And, and the horse-like beings that they're upon, they themselves are demonic in form. They have uh, heads like lions. They, they have uh, fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths with which to kill people. And they have snake-like tails. Now, I am just as bewildered by this imagery as you are. When you read it, there's so much going on. What are we to make of this vast horde? Again, I, I think John is grasping at language that his hearers could understand in some way to get across the main thrust of what he's seeing. And the main thrust of what he is seeing is that these will be demonic beings who are permitted by God not only to wound, which is how they were limited in the fifth trumpet, but now to kill, and they kill with abandon one-third of humanity, one-third of remaining humanity. Now, as of today, there are almost 8 billion people on the earth. A third of that would be 2.6 billion people. That's a lot of deaths. But notice, not everyone will be killed. 
Because as terrible as this plague will be, it's still warning. It's still a warning to the world. Actually, this is the last warning that's going to be given. So how does humanity respond to this final trumpet warning? Look at verse 20 to 21. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual morality, or their theft. So how do they respond? Well, they completely refuse to repent. You see, they're utterly hardened. They've made their decision. And so they continue to rush headlong into sin. And John gives us kind of five characteristic sins that are listed here. Idolatry, murder, sorcery, sexual morality, and theft. The world has always been characterized by these evils. But in the last days, they will continue to be characterized. And these evils will be even more rampant. And even trumpet judgments from God will not be able to deter sinful humanity from pursuing their sins. But I don't want us to move on before we highlight again the irony that you see here. Because there is a, uh, there's an irony here of God's judgment. Verse 20 and 21, it makes it clear that the people of the last day are worshiping idols and they're involved in sorcery. That word sorcery, it's a word that speaks of magic incantations, potions, degraded rituals. In a word, it speaks of witchcraft. It speaks of the kind of things that many people in our culture are now feeling very comfortable to bring into the light so that we can see that they're doing it. And we need to pay attention. Witchcraft. The God who is just will punish those demon worshipers by unleashing demons upon them. They don't know what they're worshiping. But even then, they won't repent. They will be completely hardened in pursuing their sin. So this is a sobering passage, isn't it? It's a very weighty passage. It's a very sobering passage. I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning now pulling from this passage three truths that we see here. The first truth is that Satan and demons are real. Look at verse 11. They had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. And then verse 15, so the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. Now, the 19th century French poet, his name was Charles Baudelaire, famously said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he does not exist. And for a long time in our culture, that has been the case. We have had the devil presented as a man in a red suit, and he has a pitchfork, and he has a tail. In other words, Satan has been portrayed as a fairy tale. He's certainly nothing you need to take serious, certainly something you can laugh at. The problem is that Satan is not a fairy tale. And those fallen angels who have aligned themselves with him, they're not myths. And they are nothing compared to God. So keep that in your mind. God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He's in a class by himself. And yet these fallen angels are vastly more intelligent and cunning and powerful than you or me. Satan and his demons are the power behind the false religions. There's something of a tension in the Bible. The idols seem to be powerless. They can't do anything. That's true. And yet it's very clear when you're involved in idolatry, you're participating with demons. There is a power behind false religion. 
whether that false religion is Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, uh, they sense that there's a power there. Where's the power coming from? Well, it's coming from these fallen angels. It's a power that holds captive the souls of those who are in bondage to these false religions. But it's not God's power, it's Satan's power. And those who worship Satan overtly and directly understand that he offers power. They do not perform magic spells for no reason. They do not do rituals and incantations for no reason. They do so because there's a real power there. So why does Megan Fox drink the blood of her boyfriend during rituals? It's not for no reason. She does so because there's power there. Why does Marina Abramovich participate in the utterly evil and satanic practice of soul cooking? Is it for the sake of art? After all, she's an artist. No, she does these things because there's a power there, but it's an evil power. It's a satanic power because Satan and his demons are real and their power is unclean. We need to keep that in mind. That came home to me in a new way several years ago. I've always believed that Satan has power that those who are involved in him can access in some way. But it came home to me in a new way when I read about a woman, a spirit medium, you would call her a witch, who was converted under the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones in the 1930s during a revival that was happening at his church. This was her testimony of her experience when she came into Lloyd-Jones' church. She said, The moment I entered your chapel and sat down on a seat amongst the people, I was conscious of a supernatural power. I was conscious of the same sort of supernatural power as I was accustomed to in our spiritist meetings, but there was one big difference. I had a feeling that the power in your chapel was a clean power. And that's the difference. God's power is a clean power. Satan's power is a dirty power. It's unclean. But we do need to be aware that Satan and his angels are real and they are active. Satan is not on a mountain somewhere just hoping that bad things are going to happen in the world. He knows that his time is limited and he's doing his worst. He's active and he's at work. And that means, brothers and sisters, we need to be discerning. This is a call for wisdom. This is a call for discernment. This is a call for being wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's important for us to do that. We need to be wise about what we participate in. Have you noticed the direction the entertainment of our culture is taking? Friends, if we're going to follow Jesus, we can't blindly watch whatever we just happen to want to watch on television or in the movies. Why? Because we don't want to unwittingly be involving ourselves in demonic activity. And parents, we need to be vigilant. Why? Because Satan is coming after our children in a hundred different ways. And children are not discerning. They're not discerning. And so if you just give them carte blanche access to anything they want to watch, understand Satan will take that as an opportunity to have them watch all kinds of things. And so I'd encourage you, parents, I'm not trying to set down a new law for you. I am saying we must be discerning because we live in a dark time. And we need God to give us wisdom to know how to do that. Oh, parents or children are not discerning. We know that psychologically. We can see that moment by moment. They need us to guard them as best we can. 
And certainly they need us to pray for them and to help them to process things that they experience as well. That's the first truth. Satan and demons are real. There's a second truth. I hope this one is encouraging. God is sovereign. He's sovereign. You see that in this passage so clearly. Look at verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have God's seal on their foreheads. And then skip down again to verse 15. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. Now, if you've been troubled up to this point by the weight of the passage and the difficulty of the subjects that we've been covering this morning, I want to try to change your perspective. I want us to see in this passage the sovereignty of God because it's both glorious and it's a wonderful comfort for us who follow the true God. First, this passage shows us that God is sovereign over demons. Did you notice that in verse 4? Who told these demonic beings not to harm the grass or plants or trees? or anyone who had the seal of God on their foreheads. Well, God's the one that did that. God's the one that sets the boundaries and fallen angels, they're way more powerful than us. They're nothing to God. They have no choice but to obey. God's the one who sets the boundaries. If God did not sovereignly uh, restrain demons, they would overflood this world the way a hundred foot tsunami would overflood a beach. But God does restrain them. They may hate him, but they have no choice but to bow the knee and do what he says. And that's good news for us, brothers and sisters. Demons cannot possess believers. Why? Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And sometimes Satan is permitted to afflict or to sift a believer. You see that in the case of Job and you see that in the case of Peter. And yet it's always the Lord that sovereignly sets the limit for that suffering and says this far and no further, our God is sovereign over demons. Second, this passage shows us that God is sovereign over times and seasons. You see that in verse 15. Again, these four angels are bound until the hour, a particular hour, day, month, and year. Now, who set the date for their release? Again, God sets the date for their release because God is the one who's sovereign over all the events of history. So we can have every confidence that every event in history, whether it's national tragedies or the death of national leaders or even end-time catastrophes, all of them are completely under the sovereign hand of God who's in control. And third, this passage shows us that God sovereignly protects his people. Look at verse 4 again and notice whom the demons aren't permitted to attack. Well, they're not permitted to attack anyone that has the seal of God on their heads, which we, again, we say that's just a, a spiritual, symbolic way of saying those who belong to Jesus. Uh, these, these beings will not be able to harm them. Now, it is true that believers are going to die during the tribulation. It is true that the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is going to do his worst. It is true that the nations of the world will align underneath him, and they will also do their worst against those who follow Jesus. But when God pours out his wrath on the world, he will make a distinction between those who belong to him and those who do not, because he's sovereign. There's a third truth. Sin is deeply rooted. Sin is deeply rooted in the human heart. You see this so strongly, verse 20 and 21. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, 
or their thefts. Now, having looked at the utter destruction that's going to fall upon the earth as a result of these uh, six trumpets, and particularly the, the last two, the fifth and the sixth, which are called woes, you would expect that those who survive would just bow the knee to God. You'd expect that they'd say, you're God and we're not God and we're, we're doing wrong. You think they would cast themselves upon him for mercy. Is that what they do? No, they do not repent. They do not change. Why? Because they're pursuing the things that they love. That's why. Because sin is bound up in the human heart. That's why. They've chosen sides, and they're going to stick with the sides that they've showed us, that they've chosen. What does it show us? It shows us how sinful the human heart is. You see, the problem with sin is not that it causes us to do a few bad things. That's not the problem with sin. The problem with sin is that it is, at its very nature, a hatred of God. That's what sin is. Sin is enmity against God. It's warfare against God. It's hatred against God. That's the nature of sin. This warfare against God. Listen to how John Owen spoke of the evil of sin. He said, as every drop of poison is poison and will infect, and every spark of fire is fire and will burn, so everything of sin is enmity. It will poison. It will burn. The slightest acting, the meanest and most imperceptible working of it is the acting and working of enmity. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 8 verse 7. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to. Now, this and this alone explains the unwillingness of the men and women of that time to turn away from their sin and their idolatry and their sorcery and their thefts and their murder and all of it. This explains it. Why won't they turn away? Because sin is deeply rooted in the human heart. And we might be tempted sitting here this morning to think, well, that's certainly going to be true of those bad people then when they're living in that bad place. And they're No, that's true, brothers and sisters, of all humanity. That is the problem we face. The problem we face is that by nature we don't love God. By nature we hate Him. And we don't want Him to reign in our lives. We want to reign in our lives. It's true of you this morning if you've sided with the world against God, or if you've worshiped other things other than God, or if you've ignored God to pursue your own way in your own dreams, in your own desires, in your own identities. It's true if you haven't repented and put your trust in Jesus. Friend, that, that's the issue. That's the very heart of the problem. And, and by talking about the heart of the problem, we're getting now to the very center of the Christian faith because the Christian faith is uh, at its heart a person, Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the solution to the problem. Amen. He's the solution. We are marked by sin, by an enmity towards God. Jesus, the God-man, came into this world to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly because you and I have failed to do so. You see, the Bible teaches that we're created by God to know him, to love him, and serve him. God's the one who gives us strength for the day, a mind to think, uh, talents, opportunities. God's the one that keeps our hearts beating, our brains 
functioning, our lungs breathing each and every moment. But we were born sinful and separated from him. And so by nature, it feels very normal for us to simply ignore God or despise him maybe or, or make up our own God. I don't like a God the way the Bible presents God. I don't like that. My God does this and my God likes that and my God affirms me here. And all it is, is sin showing its enmity against the true God, saying, I will not have God be the ruler of my life, but I will rule my life. And we've all done it. We've done it in a hundred different ways, but we have refused to have God be the king of our lives. And that's the problem. The problem is sin and sin is serious. Sin sets us under the wrath of God. And the Bible says that God is holy and we're not holy. And so there's no way for us to be good enough for God. There's no way for me to make up for the sins that I have committed against a holy God. There's no way for you to do that, friend. If you're to stand before God and you're not covered by Christ and his perfect righteousness, there will be one sentence and the sentence will be eternal judgment. That's what the Bible teaches. I'm not making it up. I'm simply telling you out of love for you, this is what God's word says. But hear this. This is why the good news is such good news. Because God has come. He's come into this world. He's lived the perfect life that you need. He's, he's done it all perfectly. And then he laid his life down willingly, self-consciously. He was on a mission to do so. And on the cross, he bears in himself the wrath of God, the infinite wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead. Why? Demonstrating that the father had accepted that perfect sacrifice. And now the way to salvation for you this morning, friend, is it's the one thing that these people are unwilling to do. They're unwilling to repent. They're unwilling to turn away from their sin and turn to God. But this morning, the gospel cries out and it says, today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin. Put your trust in Christ, the Savior God has provided for sinners. Come and have life. Experience life in Christ. Know what it is to have all of your sins forgiven. Know what it is to have God as your Father. Know what it is to have brothers and sisters around you who love you and who are on the way to heaven with you. Know what it is to be accepted and beloved by the one who created you. And it's a free gift. You can't earn it. But you can receive it. You can receive it this morning. And maybe you're hearing these words and you're thinking, I don't quite get it. That seems like there's some truth there, but I don't quite get it. My encouragement to you would be, friend, follow the light. If you see there's something there, don't just sit back and get distracted. Read your Bible or talk with one of us. We'd love to sit down with you and talk with you about what God's done for us and just go through the scripture and explain why Jesus is who he is and what he's done and how you can have life with him. We'd have no greater joy than to do that because can't you tell from this passage that the stakes are high? We must all die. We must all stand before this God. There's a way to be ready, and it's through Christ. He's the Savior. So put your trust in him. Well, at the beginning of this sermon, we noted the way that an overt now Satanism is growing in our culture. And we have seen in our passage that a day is coming when God is going to unleash demons on this world as an act of judgment. Those are weighty and troubling realities, right? But we've also seen in the midst of it that God, the sovereign God, is on the throne. He's sovereign over demons. He's sovereign over time and seasons. 
and he sovereignly protects his people. So we have everything we need to walk into this new week with great confidence because God is for us and he loves us and he's going to keep all of his promises to us and he's going to bring us safely home to a new heavens and a new earth where we will serve him forever. There is no better news. Well, friend, if you're just checking out Christianity, understand we would put our worldview up against anyone's. There's no better news. There's no better news. We pray you'll embrace it. Let's pray.